You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. I don't just happen to choose to uh, to teach on divorce uh, on any given Sunday. Uh, We are just faithfully walking through the text, and here we find ourselves in chapter 10. Now, Something to note about the Gospel of Mark. The first half of the Gospel has really been answering one key question. Who is Jesus? And uh, this question comes to sort of a glorious conclusion at the Mount of Transfiguration. As Christ is transfigured in glory, displaying that he is the king, the divine king of the kingdom. But... The second half of the the Gospel of Mark sort of shifts, and now the teachings of Jesus uh, are really centered around how Jesus is going to reign and what it means to be living, what it means for us to be living within his kingdom. Now, Jesus being king and ushering in a kingdom means that his rule and reign comes to bear on every aspect of our life. He's king over our past, he's king over our present, he's king over our future. He's king over our mind, he's king over our heart, he's king over our body. And the the reality of the kingship of Jesus Christ even comes to bear on our relationships. The fact that Christ is king means something uh, for how we relate to one another, and specifically, as we see this morning, how we relate in marriage. Now, what I always find that I have to do when we talk about marriage, which wasn't, isn't all the time, but whenever we do, there's always the sort of like, let me preface this briefly before we dig into the passage. So bear with me on this. A, cu- a couple notes. Uh, the first is this. Surprisingly, the Bible has a ton, has a lot to say about marriage. But it is impossible to take the full weight of what God has to say about marriage and place it all on one scripture passage and fit it all into one sermon. So what does that mean for us today? It means that there's a lot that I'm just not going to cover. I'm sorry. I can't. I just can't. Um, And really because there's a lot that Jesus doesn't cover here. Jesus doesn't say it all here. Jesus, I mean, this is a very short, brief passage. And um, sometimes that's all it requires. 
So there, there, is, uh, there, there is more that the Bible has to say about marriage than I will ever be able to describe specifically in our time together. Additionally, what we need together to, to be aware of is who is present in the room right now. There are those who are happily married, and there are those who are unhappily married. There are those who are divorced. There are those who are potentially going through divorce right now. There are those who come from history of divorce. There are single people who are happily and joyfully called to singleness. There are single people that are resenting their singleness right now. There are those who experience same-sex attraction and are trying to, now, trying to figure out what that means to faithfully follow Jesus. There are those who experience same-sex attraction and know what that means to follow Jesus. Uh, there are those who are dating that are headed towards marriage. There are some of you that have secretly been buying the ring behind the scenes. There are those of you who are dating that have no plans to marry. Okay? There's a full spectrum here. There's a lot of us here this morning, and I realize that your experience of marriage may be very different than the person next to you. Your own personal experience, your own views of marriage, what you've seen in this world. And so a sermon on marriage has the ability to draw out a lot of different emotions. There are those this morning who are going to experience, maybe you already have, experience fear, shame, uh, despair, anger, defensiveness, indifference at the mention of marriage. And here's the truth. I can't stop you from those emotions, and I can't change your particular experience. But what I need you to know this morning is my intention today, and I believe it's Jesus's intention as well, is my intention is not to cause pain. I'm not here to cause pain. Uh, this, is, this is a text that I actually wrestled through quite a bit, and uh, there's a number of topics I'd rather teach on in the book of Mark, hell being one of them, uh, than, than, than divorce. So uh, th- there's not, like, I'm not getting my jollies uh, from, from being, you know, saying difficult things about marriage. Um, but I am here to call us to come under the, the teachings of Jesus Christ to find healing and transformation. And... I'm not here to drum up shame and despair over the past. I'm sure you've experienced that quite enough in the world uh, this last week. But I, I want to offer you hope for your present and hope for your future, because guess what? That's what we have in Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, the direction for this morning, it's, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at the controversy. We're going to look at the covenant. And then finally, the conversation. Let's look first at the, con- uh, the controversy. Now, this is probably a good place to begin as we talk about marriage, and it's this, that controversy surrounding marriage isn't new. It's not new. Now, today, you may hear things like the attack on marriage, or the erosion of the, of the family, or the redefining of marriage. When my generation thinks about controversy surrounding marriage, we're typically going to think about Supreme Court rulings and specific legislation on sort of opening the door on redefining marriage. For boomers, you are probably going to be thinking about the 60s and the 70s, the sexual revolution that began to redefine how we interact with sex and family and relationships. There are these different mile markers along the way. And and while these these issues may be very current and very relevant to our time, and and they are these significant mile markers as as this sort of conversation about marriage continues to grow, it's not new. Controversy is not new. And, And what we see here in Mark is that um, marriage has been at the center of controversy dating back all the way to the first century. So let's look at this passage once, uh, once more, verses 1 through 2. 
And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Note that phrase, beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, he was, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, where his disciples, where Jesus and his disciples are is very important to understanding this scene that we're looking at this morning. It says, beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan. Why why is that significant? Well, this reintroduces a place that has already appeared in the book of Mark. Beyond the Jordan is the place where John the Baptist ministered. And beyond the Jordan is the place of King Herod's jurisdiction. John the Baptist, King Herod. So now you may be asking, okay, that's nice. What does that have to do with marriage? Actually, it has a lot to do with marriage. Because as we've read of earlier in the book of Mark, we we read this scene. Mark 6. For it was Herod who had seized, sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Why is this relevant? Because this topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is what ultimately cost John the Baptist his life. A former bishop named N.T. Wright talks about a time in the 1990s where bishops and theologians and pastors were being frequently asked by journalists in England to answer questions about marriage. And there was this influx of articles being written about marriage. And he says, he explains that this would be a really strange thing you know, all this interest about writing about the church's stance on marriage if it didn't correspond with something else that was occurring at the time. And what was happening in the 90s in England specifically was King Charles and Princess Diana, or I'm sorry, Prince Charles and Princess Diana's marriage was on the rocks. There was a lot of hearsay about what was going to happen, and then ultimately it ended in divorce in, in 1996. And he said these journalists would, would press these leaders to talk about divorce in order, so that, in order to get to the, like, the final leading question, questions like, well, then are you saying that Prince Charles is in sin? Or, or what, what, what do you mean about our beloved uh, Princess Diana? Will you speak in such a manner against royalty? It was a form of entrapment. What do we see the Pharisees doing? Something very similar here. They're leveraging the controversy of marriage that existed in this time and place in order to entrap Jesus in hopes that he follows in John the Baptizer's fate. They're, they're, they're at King Herod's front door saying, hey, Jesus, what do you think about marriage and divorce and remarriage? Like, is Herod listening? There's this hope to trap Jesus. Why? Ultimately, so that it would cost him his life. This is very hostile. They're testing him in hostility. Now, it's important for us to recognize that sometimes questions about marriage aren't really questions about marriage at all. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked about, you know, what's your view of marriage? And it becomes really clear that this individual is not asking my view about marriage in order to grow in an understanding what the Bible says about marriage, but really to be able to peg me. Oh, you're one of those. 
Are you one of those? What we need to recognize today is we bring our questions to the Bible, questions regarding sex, questions regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage. We need to recognize that we may be motivated by our own personal agenda. The questions that we bring this morning may be motivated not uh, by understanding, but in order to discredit. I have to imagine that there are people here just saying, like, just kind of waiting, like, you, you better not say it, or I'm, I'm curious what you're going to say, because this is a deal breaker for me. We have to humble ourselves. We're not here to reinforce our own personal beliefs. We're here to come under the good and glorious and gracious transforming authority of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we all bring our bias, we all bring our agenda, we all bring our, like, trying to reinforce our ideas, and we just need to do away with those today. So Jesus sees right through this controversy, and in wisdom, he responds. Look with me in verses 3 through 4. He answered them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. What Jesus is doing here is he's turning the tables on the Pharisees. And he's exposing a controversy that existed within the religious world at this time. Just like today, uh, there were different camps within religion. At this time, there were followers of two really main groups, followers of Shammai, which were the more conservative group, and then followers of Halal, which were the more liberal group. And the split was really over a controversy and a disagreement about a particular uh, interpretation of a word that's found in Deuteronomy 24, where as we read, Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce to be offered to a wife in order to end a marriage. And so there was controversy over this one word that they felt was sort of fuzzy. The more conservative group took the view that, uh, that marriage could only be broken, divorce was only acceptable in times of like gross moral uh, infidelity, particularly in times of adultery. Then there was the more liberal group, the followers of Halal, which believed that it was a more open interpretation, that if, if a wife annoyed a husband or a wife embarrassed a husband, in fact, they found records of a wife, or I'm sorry, a husband divorcing his wife because he didn't like the way that dinner was prepared. So it was a, a much more loose interpretation of the passage in order to offer a divorce. So... This is what's present going on right here. That's the rift that, that's existing in the religious world as they bring this question to Jesus in order to test him. So we need to recognize what's going on here. The Pharisees' question is really this. And I think at the end of the day, this is what we're asking of Jesus too. Are you liberal or are you conservative? Are you batting for this team or are you batting for this team? Just tell us, Jesus. What are you? Now, I'm not going to go into length uh, because we've, 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 we've gone through this together. He's neither. <laughs> I, I hate to break your, burst your bubble because Jesus is always going to be too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. He, he just doesn't fit into our narrow box. In fact, I love this. They ask him a yes or no sort of question. Is it lawful? Guess what? He doesn't say yes. And he doesn't say no. Well, Jesus, what are you? Yes or no? But he doesn't answer why. Because he just can't fit into our narrow categories. And what he's exposing here, listen, is that we're asking all the wrong questions. When Jesus refuses to answer our question, it's not because he's not listening. It may be Jesus saying, you're asking the wrong question. 
Look with me in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. So here's, here's the flaw in both camps present here. And this is what levels the playing field for all of us. Both are hard-hearted. We think that we have the moral edge because of our particular views on politics or gender or marriage. Jesus levels the playing field. He says, no, 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 here's a problem that you all have, hardness of heart. And here's the other fatal flaw in, in, in what they're conversing about here. Both are approaching God's word incorrectly. See, like many of us, they both, both groups came to the word of God essentially asking the same question. What does it allow me to do? And what does it not allow me to do? In other words, this is the question we're always asking. What can I get away with? What is permissible? Which we know from the, the, the grand narrative of the scripture is obviously the wrong question. It misses the bigger point of God's heart and design. And so this is interesting. From the legalist all the way down to the rebel, from the conservative to the liberal, all are looking for the lines. All are searching for the boundaries in order to avoid them, in order to straddle them, in order to bend them, or in order to break them. But here's the fatal flaw beneath all of those positions. We're all looking for the boundaries. We're all looking for the lines. But the disciple of Jesus Christ is one that searches for something better. Here's what I'm calling you to today. Here's what the Bible's calling you today. To search for something greater than the boundaries. The disciple doesn't look for the boundary to straddle. The disciple looks for God's heart to honor. Write that down. Write that down. You'll forget it tomorrow, I, I promise. The disciple doesn't look for the boundary to, uh, to straddle. The, the disciple looks for God's heart to honor. Let's be honest. We are always asking the question, what is permissible? I can't tell you how many times I've been approached. Like, like what, what does the Bible allow me to do in this position? Like, I got this girlfriend, like, you know, like, what are the boundaries? First base? Second base? Like, where, where, where's the boundaries here? Or, you know, like, hey, the, the state's legalized marijuana. Like, where's the boundaries here? Pastor, like, like a little blunt? Like, what's going on here? Like, with a drink? Or, so here's the thing. We're always looking for the boundaries, whether your vices are acceptable or not. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Here's the question. What is best? So apply that to everything in our lives. It's not about what can, we get, what can I get away with with the spending of my money? What's like the bare minimum that I should give to the church? What's the bare minimum I should give to the poor? Wrong question. Well, like, like what can I get away with in like sexual relations with, this, with, my, with my girlfriend and my boyfriend? Like what can I get away with with drinking and all these different things? Wrong question. Wrong question. Wrong question. Jesus says, I'll do something better. I'm going to reveal to you God's heart. Which leads us to our second point, the covenant. We're looking for the boundaries. The Pharisees were looking for the boundaries. Jesus says, I'll one-up you. I'll show you something better. Rather than getting caught in the controversy of the law, he goes back even further. He sort of leapfrogs Deuteronomy. He leapfrogs the law. He leapfrogs Sinai. All the way back to Genesis 2, 
where we see the creation of marriage. What Jesus does here is he's quoting from the creation account where we read of God's good world that is free from sin, free from corruption, free from brokenness, free from shattered relationships. Paradise. And what Jesus does is he grounds the discussion about marriage, what is best, where it belongs. And I love this. He's not allowing the crowd to define marriage. He's not allowing politics to define marriage, King Herod. And here, I hate to break your heart, he's not even allowing religion to define marriage. He's doing something better. He's showing them that the pattern and design of marriage is something that is grounded in the very creation of the world by God himself. Okay? Look at me in verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, quote, so when Jesus quotes God, it's like, Double God, you got to listen here. Um, God made them male and female. Next quote, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So there are some things that we see about the covenant of marriage, and I want to note those things. The first is this, the shape of marriage. The shape of marriage. Now, I remember from my days of construction that whenever there was a question about a project or a discrepancy about what was going on in this project, whether it was large or small, if there was an argument about what needed to get done, the approach was always the same. You go back to the architectural drawings with one question, how was it designed? It doesn't matter how big the project was or how small it was, how big of a discrepancy in argument, how small of an argument. It was always led back to the same place. In fact, if you go to a job site today, you will probably step in and you will see in the center of the project, sanctified and set apart and holy, the architectural drawings, the A-sheets, where everyone can go and refer what is pertinent to their part of the project, how it was designed. And this is what Jesus is doing. This is Jesus's approach. Let's get an understanding for the architect's design for this thing. Let's not get caught up in the controversy. Let's go straight to the heart of the matter. Here in Genesis 2, we see God's normative pattern for marriage. I'm going to be very uh, clear and, and very straightforward. God's normative pattern for marriage is spelled out in the scriptures between one man and one woman bound together in an ongoing faithful covenant relationship, the only fitting place for a one flesh union. The church does well to follow Jesus' approach here to leap over the controversy and go back to the very beginning to see the shape of marriage. I don't, I don't communicate that to be controversial. I don't particularly think that is controversial. Not when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is extremely, explicitly clear on that. And so our approach is to jump, like Jesus, is just like, let's not get caught in the, in the weeds here and caught into the controversy. Let's just go back to the beginning. Now, that being said, everything I say about marriage always needs like a follow-up and a preface. So here we go. It's not the church's job to legislate what the world should do or who people should be with. Um, we don't force the world to conform. But there's a second side to that coin. The Bible warns us about being conformed to the world. 
Okay? So our, our approach is not to try to change people and to try to legislate change for the sake of marriage in this world, but we're warned, careful, because the world is trying to conform you. It is, however, the church's responsibility to uphold and model this historically biblical design for marriage in the church and amongst its members in a way that is winsome and has integrity. That's our job. Not to legislate change, but to uphold God's design within the church. So this is what it means for my life. My fight for the sake of marriage is not ultimately going to be fought in the polls, though I will participate in November. My fight for the sake of marriage is not ultimately going to be fought online on debates. You probably won't find me there at all, just telling you. Uh, My fight for the sake of marriage is not going to be in the face of people that disagree with me. Here's where my fight for the sake of marriage is going to be. It's going to be in the everyday, normal stuff of life as Michelle and I seek to live out a Christ-glorifying, Christ-honoring marriage to our kids, our neighbors, our church, and our friends, and beyond. Like in the normal, overlooked stuff of loving and failing, of forgiving and patience in the everyday stuff of life. That's where the fight is fought. So here's a question that we need to consider. Do you want to make a difference in this world, and do you want God's design to take shape around you? Well, I want to, I want to offer some practical steps for you, no matter where you find yourself today. First, if you're married, this is novel, I know. Love your spouse. Love your spouse and we don't take this, this statement for granted. Love your spouse and stay faithful to them. Mar, mind, heart, and body. Ephesians says that marriage is a mysterious window into the love of Jesus Christ who sacrificed and loved his bride, the church, to the point of death. Which means that we have the opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ on a daily basis through loving, faithful, covenant marriages. Keep preaching that message. If you're single, reflect Jesus in your singleness. This is probably important to note. I should have said this earlier. This is a sermon being preached, listen, by a single man who lived as a 30-something-year-old single man joyfully, happily until his death. So here are some steps. One, refuse to compromise. As I mentioned, the world is trying to to conform us to its image, and there are multiple opportunities to step in. Refuse to give your body to anyone that's not your spouse. Some of of us are playing house, unwilling to to make a home. There, again, as I mentioned, the covenant of marriage is the only fitting place for one flesh union. Um, Also, here's some encouraging parts. Pray for the strength and the joy of the marriages of the church. I would love to hear the prayers of single people in this church praying for the married people in this church. I know there are a number of single people here. Statistically speaking, there are probably more single people than married people here today. And you're probably thinking, okay, this has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with you. In fact, the writer of Hebrews would say this, let marriage be held in honor among all. There is to be a place of reverence and cherished honor in your heart for marriage, whether you're single or you're married. And so it's your responsibility, just like ours, to be praying for the sake, safety, sanctity, strength, and all the other good S words of marriage in your church. That's your responsibility to bear. Amen? 
uh, if you're planning to get married, as I mentioned, I know that there are some couples that are uh, going through our premarital counseling and are also kind of on their way uh, towards marriage. Here's my encouragement to you, or uh, whatever the next level up from encouragement is. Here's my exhortation. Choose a spouse who will continually point you to Jesus and seek to honor him in your relationships. Do not settle. Like the Bible talks about not being uh, unequally yoked. So here's what I'm calling you to do. Pursue a spouse that for the next 40, 50, 60 years is going to push you upward towards Christ and not pull you down. Because we believe this thing is por vida, for life, till death do we part. We live in a world that is questioning just about everything regarding sex and marriage. And so, this is my summary practically, the most compelling witness we have is going to be faithful marriages and faithful singleness. Faithful marriages and faithful singleness. The second thing we see about marriage is the sanctity of marriage. The sanctity of marriage. Now, feelings about marriage are going to ebb and flow. Our own personal feelings in marriage, hate to break it to you, they're going to be up and they're going to be down. You ask any person that's been married longer than, I don't know, 12 seconds, uh, you, you, you're in love and then you're out of love. There's, there's, there's highs and then there are lows. Culturally speaking, marriage is not on the upswing of popularity right now. Right? Culture is not just like marriage, we love marriage. The, uh, people are very suspicious about marriage. But regardless of how messed up the picture of marriage may become, Listen to me, it is always a window into the holiness and the goodness of God. Always. It's important to note something here. Jesus is referencing the creation account where marriage is introduced before the fall, before sin, before corruption, which means that even in our far from perfect marriages, God has still provided a window to the world into paradise, a direct window into paradise. I'm not talking like Bruno Mars here, like your sex takes me to paradise. Something more than that. Something more than that. Maybe not less than that, but more than that. Covenant faithfulness is a window into paradise. It makes sense of all those longings our souls are always trying to reconcile, but we don't know what it means. That faint echo that when it comes to our ear, we can't distinguish the noise. It's the noise of paradise. And, and, and marriage says, let me show you a little picture of it. Regardless of how broken it gets. Marriage is holy and sacred, not because we make it that. If anything, we mar it. But it is holy and blessed, nonetheless, because God has made it. And so we view marriage like we view people, the sanctity of life, the dignity of human beings. We would all agree that every single human being, no matter how broken or discarded they may be, are made in the image of God. And it's intrinsic value and dignity that is written into every human being. Why? Because they are created in the image of God. And we have to view marriage in the same way. It doesn't matter how broken it gets. It doesn't matter how marred it gets. It doesn't matter how much we misrepresent it. It is sacred because God has made it. What God has joined together. What God has joined together. Uh, if you've been to any of the, the weddings that I've performed, uh, you will be familiar with this, this quote, I've read it at every uh, marriage ceremony I've ever officiated, is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
He says, as you, gave, as you first gave the ring to one another and have now received it a second time from the hand of the pastor, so love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage above the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. The sanctity of marriage. Third and finally, the steadfastness of marriage. The steadfastness of marriage. Now, Tim and uh, Kathy Keller, in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, they point out that in our contemporary Western society that the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model now characterizes relationships, unfortunately, including marriages. So what we've done is that we've adopted the consumer mindset, and now we approach marriage like we approach shopping. So the consumer mindset is something like this. I, I go shopping for something that I want. Now, typically, I'm picking out something that is based on more superficial standards. And I have that thing, I purchase that thing, and I have it, and I enjoy it until the day that I don't enjoy it anymore. It gets old, it gets worn out, it may break, or I might find that something else better comes along. I've never been like a brand loyal person. I've never been like, like Ford for life or something like that. Man, if that thing breaks down, I'm getting the next affordable thing. I've never been a clothing brand loyal person. I don't care what it says, as long as it's inexpensive and it's not funding slavery over, overseas. And it, it just, see what I'm saying? Like, I'm not like the brand loyal individual, and I'm guessing that many of you are not either. And so what ends up happening is that we treat relationships very similarly. We, we approach friendships with the consumer mindset. That you are useful and helpful for a season, but now that I'm in a different season of life, I don't need you. Here's this one. This is heartbreaking. This is one that we're confronted with often. The way that we relate to church. I can't tell you how many times the people come to this church and said, you know what, I just wasn't getting what I wanted out of my last church, so here I am. And I'm thinking in my mind, we are on borrowed time. I have like two years with you max until the next cool, hip church shows up down the street and you're out. All right, back on topic. Um, marriage. <laughs> um, marriage, the same way. We treat marriage the same way. But when the husband is called to hold fast to his wife, the original language here, both in the Greek and in, in the Hebrew, is this idea of being glued together. Of not just like being together, but glued together. Now, if you've ever used super glue to fix anything, and in a household of five kids, super glue is a must, keep on hand, then you know the one flesh power of glue. You make, you're doing your thing, you're so concentrated, you forget that it got a little bit on your finger, you don't, and then you realize that your fingers are fused indefinitely. There is a bond here, and that's, what the picture, that's the picture that we see here. That's the picture of covenant, two people being glued together. I know we don't like to say it this way, but stuck together. Stuck together through sickness and health. 
stuck together through riches, riches and poverty, stuck together through happiness and, and unhappiness, stuck together during times of emotional fulfillment or emotional strain, stuck together in times of sexual pleasure or sexual frustration, stuck together through it all. So why does Jesus put such a high emphasis on this stuck togetherness, this steadfastness? And I believe there are a number of reasons, but I want to mention two. The first is this. It's because marriage is a reflection of Jesus and the church. Marriage is always about something better and greater than itself. At the end of the day, it's not about my personal fulfillment. At the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about the marriage. At the end of the day, it's about the glory of God. And what the Bible does, what God does, is he inextricably ties the story of redemption to this weird thing that we call marriage. In fact, the Apostle Paul would describe marriage like this. He says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one, glued. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. Here's what he's saying. Covenant marriages are a daily illustration that Christ loves his church and is never giving up on her. That no matter how much she fails, he's in it to the bitter end. The inverse of this is divorce misrepresents that picture. Divorce is much bigger than ourselves, much bigger than our own happiness, much bigger than our future. It mars the picture of covenant faithfulness between God and his world. That's why those who are considering marriage need to understand the gravity of marriage. That you're stepping into something much bigger than yourself. Secondly, covenant protects. God is protecting us from harming ourselves, from harming our spouse, from harming our children, and in the case of the first century, from harming more, the more vulnerable spouse. See, we live in an individualistic society, so when we're reading this, let's be honest, we think, like, that's strict. Jesus, that's harsh. Many of us are thinking, like, yeah, but where's the loophole? You know, none of us are Bible scholars until, like, passages like this. I'm like, you've got to understand the Greek and the, this tense and this. We're finding the loophole, but here's the truth. For many other generations and places in the world, and and particularly places where divorce leaves spouses vulnerable, this is good news of protection. Let's be honest, we, we bring a very suburban perspective to this passage. And forget about the gravity and the weight of societies and times where a woman would be left vulnerable to fend for herself at the whim of her husband. This isn't harsh. This isn't strict. This is liberating. This is good news. He's also protecting our souls. See, the idea of being glued together is why divorce is so painful and destructive. We hear about these sort of like non-consequential divorces. In preparation for this message, there were ads everywhere of of cheap divorce and low-cost separation and those sort of things. The truth is, it may not cost you a lot in your bank account, but it will cost you deeply in your soul. And it costs the people around you. 
Remember, marriage is the merging of two people. As it's been described before, it's the mingling of souls. It's not an inconsequential thing. It's, it's the mingling of two people. And so as one author wrote, uh, divorce is leaving a part of self behind. And he illustrates it by saying, it's like the rabbit that escapes the trap by gnawing off its leg. You escape, but you leave a part of you behind. Jesus' difficult words here flow from his protective love. We have to see this. And Jesus knows what ultimately leads to flourishing, what leads to flourishing in our souls, what leads to flourishing in our spirituality, and ultimately what leads to flourishing in our society. What I want to do is I want to conclude with this final point, the conversation, and i got to make it real brief. Look at me in verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So there's a simple lesson here that gives me confidence, and it's this. Every sermon about marriage will always necessitate a follow-up conversation. This is Jesus. Holy words. And still, his disciples come up to him afterwards and are like, all right, what was that all about? Tell us more about that. So here's my confidence in, in, in the, my inability to communicate it all. I understand that there's going to be follow-up conversation needed. And what we want to do is we want to open up lines of communication for that because we believe that there's no one-size-fits-all message here. Today, I assume, I'm going to get pastoral here for just a moment. Today, I assume that there are a number of questions being raised in our hearts right now. What we need to remember is that the emphasis here is on the permanence of marriage. And Jesus is purposely not working through the numerous scenarios that are are being brought up here. In fact, they ask a question and Jesus doesn't even answer it. But what I want to do is I want to anticipate a few questions that we can work through and then, as I mentioned, open up lines of communication in the days and weeks and months to come to be able to talk through our complex stories together. The first question that I think someone may be asking is this, is divorce ever an option? Is divorce ever an option? And I think this is important to say. Divorce is never a command. Divorce is never a command. It is, however, a, a merciful exception in specific situations, and I think that this is what the Pharisees were missing here. Although God does not want and desire marriage, and it is a devi I'm sorry, divorce. Don't hear me wrong, sorry. Thank you, Spirit, for catching me on that. Um, though God does not desire divorce, and it is a deviation from his design, God is also merciful and grants exceptions because of the reality and devastation of sin in our world. There are specific situations where the sin of adultery or the sin of abuse or the sin of abandonment is so devastating that it's actually more harmful to stay married than to separate. In which case, counsel should be sought and separation can be considered. Let me say it one more time. God does not command us to divorce, but there are merciful exceptions in cases of adultery, abuse, and abandonment. 
Second question, what about remarriage? Statistically speaking, 40% of all marriages in America are remarriages for at least one of the people involved. So if that stat applies, we have to acknowledge that there are a lot of remarriages in the room today. And this is very pertinent, very relevant. And I have to say that the answer is very complex. And you ask any of the leaders in this church, specifically the elders, we have really wrestled through this, this question uh, in, in, in trying to nail down an answer. And, and yet we discover, once again, Jesus doesn't fit into our narrow categories. Um, it's complex because in the case of uh, death, remarriage, the Bible, this is pretty unanimous. Uh, in the case of death, remarriage is uh, available. But then there are other questions like in the case of divorce, uh, is remarriage okay? In which case there need to be a number of questions then asked, has reconciliation with the former spouse been sought? Supposing that it was possible. Supposing that it would endanger uh, one, one or both people. Has there been repentance? Has there been opportunity for change? Uh, questions like who divorced who and for what reasons? Was the divorce on biblical grounds or was the divorce because of in, irreconcilable difference? Uh, did this divorce occur before conversion or after conversion? There are a number of questions, complex questions. Now, the scriptures speak to them in, in Matthew 19 and in 1 Corinthians 7, but I have to tell you right now that I'm not going to be able to give you a one-size-fits-all answer to that. But it's just another call that you need to be living and wrestling in community, seeking godly counsel and speaking to your pastors about what's going on in your life. I don't think I know I know that there are marriages that are struggling right now behind closed doors in secret. And I refuse to hear about it once it's too late. Bring it up. You will not be the first. Michelle and I have worked through with other wise and godly people that we trust our own marriage issues in this church, apart from which we would be done. Do you understand that? I'm making it explicitly clear. Seek help. Number three. And last question, what if I've been divorced, and what does that mean for me? Beyond questions about can we marry, can we remarry, what does it mean about divorce, I want to ask really the question about our relationship to God, because I believe that there are a lot of people here today that are carrying the weight and shame and, and despair of a, a prior divorce in their past, wondering right now if God loves them or if They've committed the unforgivable sin. I've been asked that before. Is divorce the unforgivable sin? And so what you need to hear today is what I need to hear as well, what we all need to hear, and it's this, that God's grace is sufficient. Our sin is destructive. I hope I have not sugarcoated the gravity of marriage and divorce here. Sin is devastating. It's destructive. It tears souls and people apart, and yet... The healing and transforming power of Jesus Christ is even greater. He's greater than our ability to devastate. Divorce is not the scarlet letter that you need to wear around for the remainder of your days. Because Colossians tells us that for those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, the record of our debt was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ, meaning that Jesus wore the scarlet letter for us. The record of our offense is there nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And not only are we forgiven, but the scriptures say we are betrothed. Do you know the Bible refers to us as the bride? Now, this isn't always a pretty picture. 
Hosea describes the people of God as an unfaithful spouse that goes and becomes a prostitute. The prophets are constantly talking about where that spouse that keeps jumping in bed with other lovers. It isn't a pretty picture, and yet, it's a beautiful and redemptive picture because it tells us that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, continues to pursue his bride at all costs. And what's interesting is that the Bible doesn't just begin with a message about marriage. It actually concludes with a picture of marriage as well in Revelation 19. And it involves every single person here, whether you're married or you're single. In Revelation, we're given a vision of the bride, which is the church, walking down the aisle dressed in fine linen. Now, I'm sure we've all been to a wedding where we see the bride dressed in white, and we had that horribly sinful, judgmental thought that we didn't verbalize something along the lines of, really, white today? Okay. Let's be honest. We've all thought it. But here's the good news of the gospel. Listen, friends, despite our history, despite our tainted record, Revelation says this. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. God says to his church, to his people, wear the dress with no shame. Wear the white dress. I know where you've been. Wear the white dress. Why? Because I've claimed you. I've cleansed you. It's yours to wear. The good news is our acceptance into the arms of God is not based on our faithfulness. Our salvation is not based on our ability to to, to keep our vows to God or keep our vows to our spouse. Our salvation is based on Jesus' ability to keep his marriage vows to us. Did you know that, that Jesus has communicated his marriage vows to you explicitly and clearly? Romans 8 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's this commitment from God to see us through all the way, to love us to the end, that gives us strength and courage and power to live and love faithfully as well. We're not called to just go out there and be promise keepers. We're called to live in the promise-keeping power of Jesus Christ at work within us by his Holy Spirit. So let's proclaim to this world through our marriages, and through our singleness, that there is a God that pursues us at all costs, that loves us to the end, and will see us through. Amen?